Well, I really enjoyed the sermon series on heaven. It blessed me immensely. Um, the challenge, of course, was to consciously and proactively be looking at your inheritance. And if you're not, shame on you. If you're not looking at your inheritance, I'm not really sure you can actually live the Christian life at all. Um, you should be looking at it. You should be serious about your stewardship. You know, the two words that stuck in my mind after the series was over was one thing I think Paul said in Corinthians. He said, be careful how you build. You're a steward. All that you have, all that you are, is a stewardship before God. Every brainwave's a stewardship in one sense. So Paul says, be careful how you build, right? This is one thing we talked about. But the other thing we saw in 2 John was, watch out that you don't lose your reward. So, then of course, the last two sermons have just been, you know, gosh, just contemplating the, the, what it would be like to, to be with King Jesus in the new heaven and new earth. So as you know, those of you who've been around for a while, uh, I think all of you have been. Maybe we have one or two guests. Uh, we don't preach sermonettes here. Uh, life is too short. Um, you know a sermonette when you hear one, right? You've all, we've all been exposed to sermonettes. Um, some of the characteristics, some of the hallmarks would be that they're usually not more than 20 minutes long. They're pretty much over before they begin. Uh, there's usually at least one joke, one funny joke. Um, I'm not good at jokes, so we don't do jokes. They might read one verse or maybe two, but they don't ever give you the context, and they just run off somewhere with it. You guys have seen that happen. A sermonette is mostly about you and how God can serve you and how you can have a utilitarian view of God. And God's just here to make you, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that's His primary function. You hear a lot of that in a sermonette. Um, you hear a lot of um, pop psychology and life coaching and cheerleading. Uh, we don't do that here. Um, there's always at least one heartwarming story that will at least elicit one tear. Many times a puppy's involved. Um, how, can you, how can you miss with a puppy? There's no conviction, no mystery, no uncomfortable moments in a sermonette. Now, I know last year, as we, as we talked about uh, some really strong things, I know there was a Quite a few uncomfortable moments. I heard from some of you. It's good to have an uncomfortable moment in the church. You should have an uncomfortable moment. God is not being proclaimed as who he has revealed himself to be if you don't have any uncomfortable moments sitting there. Um, this is a good thing. There's no sense in a sermonette about the unapproachable greatness of God. It's just God in my box. The God that I think I can manage. So real churches don't preach sermonettes because real preachers fear God too much. And again, because the preacher is accountable, I'm accountable for you. Um, your blood will be on my hands if I don't tell you the truth. I have to talk to God about this. So I will always tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what God says, whether you like it or not. Um, this is what any true preacher would do. And of course, sermonettes the, beget Christianettes. Is there anything more worthless than a Christianette? 
I mean, <laughs> Jesus talks about it in Revelation, right? The, the lukewarm Christian. Is there anything more worthless than the Christian who simply attends church and goes out in the world and lives like, and, and lives like the world? Is there anything more worthless than this? Or anything more harmful than someone who says they're a Christian but lives like everybody else? Of course, this is a stench in the nostrils of God. I, I, I'm saying all of this because I'm, I'm going to get you ready for John 17. You have to be a grown-up for John 17. You know, it's that, 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 that thing C.S. Lewis talks about. You know, the Bible is for grown-ups. Yes, of course, we can teach our children um, from, the, from the Scriptures, but, but really the Bible is for grown-ups. It's for people with an adult thinking worldview. And we're going to be talking about some of those things this morning. As I said earlier, we're in on intra-Trinitarian communication. It's big, it's beautiful, it's weighty, it's deep. There's some mystery here, and some of you are going to be uncomfortable. I suspect it's a good thing. Don't you hate to sit under preaching and it's just, you know, I hate it. I, I don't like to sit under a guy who doesn't push me. Life is too short not to be pushed. I want to be pushed toward God. I want to look at God. Not the God that makes me comfortable, but sometimes the God that makes me uncomfortable. I want to look at Him. I want to know what, he, what He's saying to me and how I should live my life accordingly. So that's what we do here. We just open the Bible and preach the text. That's what we'll do this morning. Three verses just to set the stage. You guys know this. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, dishonor comes. But, when, but, when the humble, but with the humble is wisdom. So I'm, I'm going to challenge you to be humble uh, in the next few weeks. We'll be talking about some weighty things. Of course, you know Isaiah 66, 2. I refer to it all the time. God says, I will look to this one. The man or woman who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. You always have to be willing to tremble or you're not dealing forthrightly with God. Yes, mountains melt like wax before this God. No, I don't have him in my hip pocket. I can't manage him. Psalm 25, 9. I love this. Listen, God teaches the humble. And it's been my experience. I've been doing this for a while. Some people are simply not teachable. They will not hear what God says. They do not like it. Their denomination taught it different. I don't care if I can see it on the page. I don't like it. I'm going to ignore it or I'm going to explain it away. We know what God says over in James 4, 6. He opposes the proud. And is there anything more prideful than to stand over the word of God and say, I don't like that. I won't accept it. There, I don't know if there's anything more prideful in all the world and anything more offensive to God than for a so-called Christians to stand in judgment over the text. This is a huge mistake. So I, I, I'm laying this groundwork. I, I want us to enter in with all humility as we look at this intra-Trinitarian communication. That is the humility of the true believer receiving the weighty things of God.
even if they make me somewhat uncomfortable. Or even if they go against the denomination I grew up in. Listen, I, I don't care what denomination you grew up in or what denomination you've been exposed to. The only thing I care about for you is that you, sub, you submit yourself to the Word of God. You submit to it. You're not standing over it. You're looking up and you're receiving it. That's the goal for the true believer. Sometimes the Word of God, it's, it's bigger than we can fathom. And what I want to say to you, that's a good thing. That is a very, very good thing. And this morning we may need some humility and contrition and we may need a little bit of trembling. I don't know. I know some of you are familiar with some of these doctrines. Some of you probably are not. You remember the scene back in John 6? Jesus had a multitude following him. And what modern-day evangelists wouldn't turn and convert them all or invite them to have Christ or offer salvation. But Jesus turns and he starts talking in a very, very difficult way. And you remember the people hated it. Now, they loved the perks of following Christ in that he would do miracles on occasion. They loved the free food. They loved the healings, right? They loved that. But when he started talking, they left. Do you remember? They left. And Jesus turned to his men. He said, will you leave too? Remember what Peter said? Where would we go? You have the words of life, and I hope this is your confession. Right? Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, even if it's, if it's, if it's brand new and, and, and no church has ever taught me these things before, if Jesus said it, if Jesus prayed it to the Father, I want that, I want that, I want to understand that. I may struggle with it, but I, I need to understand that. You have the words of life. The Son of God has the words of life. So, Here's my bridge from the heaven sermons to uh, John 17. Here's my bridge. I said this to you last week, and uh, I'm going to keep saying it to you. I think I'll say it for each sermon in John 17. This bridge, this definition that John Piper gives us for the love of God. Biblical love is the overflow of joy that God has in himself, spilling out on unworthy people like you and me, to draw them into the greatest experience in the world, namely knowing, tasting, enjoying, praising, and being swept up into the glory of God. It's a picture of the new heaven and new earth. I love that. One more paragraph. These are random sentences from Jonathan Edwards and John Piper. With respect to heaven, eternity is not static. There will be an ever-increasing union and conformity through all eternity between the redeemed and God. While the creator and creature are forever distinct, there will be an escalating and intensifying nearness and oneness with God moving upwards with a given velocity throughout all eternity. So we're going to hear Jesus reference these kinds of things in John 17. I do believe it's exactly why the Lord has required me to go there for the next few weeks. Again, this is a scriptural Everest. John 17 has been described as the Mount Everest of the Bible. And if you're not familiar with it, as we go through these, uh, these sermons, God willing, you'll begin to understand why. So we get to the end of John 16. Jesus has been teaching his men, and without a break... Without a break, you see it there in 
Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he begins to pray. Okay? So the, the men are hearing it. Why is, he, why is Jesus praying in front of his men? Why is he praying this, 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 uh, this intra-Trinitarian communication in front of his men? Because he wants his men to hear it, and he wants you to hear it. And so everything he prays to his Father, you know, could there be anything more important for you and I to understand? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think there's anything more important than John 17. And what we, obviously the whole Bible is hugely important, but John, John 17, Jesus is saying things that he means for you to love. Right? Obviously we should love all of the Bible. But John 17 is, John 17 is in an exalted place. Let me just say it that way. Again, intra-Trinitarian communication. John 17, 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, <clears throat> he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What hour has come? The hour to which everything before and after point. This is, this is the reason God spoke the cosmos into existence. It was this hour. You know, you get a deep sense right off the bat, right? And I say this to you all the time, but I, I know that our what our tendency is to think the world is, is all about you. And that really God is there to, to serve you and make your life good. <laughs> How foolish is that in, in, in regard to what the Bible actually says? But this is the hour that all subsequent Previous hours have pointed to it's the pivot and apex of all time and eternity. The hour the Son of God sacrifices himself for his people, for the glory of God and the joy of his people. Right? That's the hour we're talking about. The sovereign, omnipotent, eternal creator God before whom the mountains melt like wax is going to allow his puny creatures to nail him to a tree. And I say this to you all the time, but don't you hate when people live their Christianity like it's about that big? Don't, don't, doesn't, isn't, isn't it an oxymoron that I, I say I believe this, but I go out in the world and I don't ever talk about it. I don't teach my kids. You know, I'm not a witness. I'm not active in the church. I'm not supporting the church. I mean, these again, these are. These things are oxymoronic. But what I want to say to you, let the whole created order stand in awe. Yahweh is in a manger and he's going to the cross. This, 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 has, to inform, this has to inform every day of your life. If, in fact, you call yourself a Christian. Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you in this hour of horror and murder and death and agony and mutilation. How is God glorified? Because every attribute of God is visible at the cross. Principally, his holiness and his justice and his wrath. And principally, his love, his kindness, his grace and mercy. It's all there. And everything in between, it's right there. As the Son of God bleeds out, it's right there. And I tell you this all the time, and God willing, you, 
you're owning it. Everything exists for His glory, not for yours and mine. And so whatever comes into your life, it's about the glory of God. I know that's hard for us sometimes. But we talked a lot about Job some weeks ago, right? So the cross is like a multifaceted diamond. Any way you turn it, you see a new aspect to the greatness of God. Verse 2, John 17, Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given me, or pardon me, given him, he may give eternal life. So there are two things I want us to notice here. He has authority over all mankind, right? King Jesus has authority. We acknowledge that regularly. Uh, he's the great God of those middle chapters of Isaiah. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm God. From eternity, I'm God. There's no God like me. There is no other God. That's the God in the manger and on the cross. And we know what Revelation 5.13 says. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them worship Him. They worship Him. And you guys know Philippians 2.10. And they will bow their knee before Him. Even the damned will bow before King Jesus. Even though they hate Him, they are forced to bow. He is the great reigning King and, and sovereign of the universe. They hate Him, but they will bow. This will happen in hell. This will happen. The second thing I want us to see there in verse 2, and let me just read that last half of that verse there. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now Jesus says this over and over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. If you've never done a thorough study of the Gospel of John, I challenge you to do it. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 39, and this is the will of the Father, that all, who he has, all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 10, 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. So I want you to hear these two beautiful truths. All who are in Christ, it's very clear. They are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. This is big. If you're a Christian this morning, this is why. You are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. And this is why you can't ever lose your salvation. Because you're a love gift from the Father to the Son. It's not because your doctrine is pure or, you know, you have a, a great statement of faith. It's because you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. You can't lose your salvation because God did it. And if you're ever in a church that says you can lose it, you're in the wrong place. You're in a false church. You've got to run, man. You've got to get out. It's not about how good you are. It's about how awesome God is. Your love gift from the Father to the Son, if you meditate deeply on that, it'll change the way you live. 
This is our eternal security. Why is Jesus praying aloud? Because He wants you to know this. And He wants you to live like this is true. Right? You're not saved because you belong to First Baptist Church or, you know, Second Methodist Church or the Anglican Church or whatever. You're not saved simply because you belong there. As we will continue to talk about, you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And Jesus says over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, I will not lose any one of them. I will not lose one of them. I will not. Five times in John 17, Jesus talks about this gifting of the elect from the Father to the Son. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 6 twice, it's in verse 9, and it's in verse 24. Your salvation is way bigger than you ever thought. If you've been taught in a, in a church that only skims the surface, it's way bigger than you ever thought. It is worship provoking it. If you get the right sense of it, you know, you will be prostrate before the Lord. You will be. Jesus says this five times in John 17. This is a big deal between the father and the son. This is a real big deal. It's something the Godhead wants you to understand. The Holy Spirit has instructed John to record this no less than 10 times in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I will lose none of them. God wants you to know this and He wants you to delight in it. He wants you to love it. And of course, if you love it, you will live it. That you are a stranger in an exile, right? You are an alien on the earth. You don't belong here. You are homesick, as we've been talking about the last three or four weeks. I'm really homesick. I really am. I know I don't belong here. The world makes me nuts. How they blaspheme God at every turn. It makes me real uncomfortable to be here. And of course, as the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? So we live for the glory of Christ, and when we die, amen. I love preaching a Christian funeral. It's one of my favorite things to do. These guys who are preaching that you can lose your salvation, they simply are ignorant. They, they are clueless. They, they, they don't understand what the Bible is teaching. They don't understand the high sovereignty of God in it. They, they shouldn't be anywhere near a pulpit. They don't know what they are talking about. John 17, 2. All that the Father gives to the Son, the Son gives eternal life. Again, it's a pretty big deal. This is, this is the Son praying to the Father. And he keeps bringing this up. Verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, I refer to this verse all the time. This is my go-to verse. Jim, how can I be sure I'm a Christian? You know God. You know him. You don't just talk about him and say you believe in him. Satan believes in him. And Satan trembles. 
<laughs> you know him like you know your spouse, like you know your kids, like you know your best friend. You know him. There's a real relationship. It's very real. It's dynamic. You like to spend time with him. That's eternal life. It's not doctrinal purity. Yes, we should strive for doctrinal purity. It's knowing God. So I'll just ask you, do you know Him? It's my go-to answer. Jim, how can I know I'm a Christian? Which, of course, I'm not qualified to answer that question. Only the Holy Spirit can answer that question between you and Him and the Word of God. But it will be in your affections is my best answer. It will be in your affections. It's not merely in your church attendance. It's not merely in your doctrinal statement. It will be in your affections. If it's not in your affections, you have every reason to be concerned. It will be in your affections. You know, some churches say, pray this prayer, believe these doctrines, do this ordinance, keep this rule, partake of this sacrament, give this much, confess these things, perform this right, join this church. All of those things can be good, but the baseline is, do you know him, beloved? This is the baseline. And every Jewish ear knew what that meant. You know, that it's an idiom for intimacy. They, know, they knew what that meant. <laughs> Knowing someone, it was, a, it was an, an idiom for, 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 for intimacy. We're talking about spiritual intimacy here. This is what we're talking about. You remember Matthew 7 when Jesus says, depart from me, I never what? You remember the people who thought they were Christians and they came up to Jesus and they said, look at all our works. We did all this. We cast out demons. We did all these things in your name. And Jesus says what? You didn't have a good enough doctrinal statement. You didn't go to church enough. Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, right? I don't know who you are. Beloved, this is huge. We're supposed to get this. We are supposed to... Know this. Verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. This is another major theme here in John 17. And how could it not be right? It's just glory. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. I think those of you who've been here long enough, you know it's always about the glory of God. It's never not about the glory of God. What does it mean that he glorified God? He obeyed God in his life. He obeyed the Father and made the Father. I like my shorthand is, I, I stole it from my pastor in seminary. My shorthand is, you make Jesus famous on the earth. That's how you glorify him. There's a whole lot of things I could say here. I don't have time to say them. But my life makes Jesus famous. My wife knows Jesus is famous because of the way I live and the way I treat her. Vice versa with the, with the, with the husband. Right. My kids know. They know about Jesus because the way I live and the, the, the way I talk to them, the way I teach. Right. So this is a pretty important 
thing. You remember, you remember Jesus, when, you remember over John 4 when they asked him, he said, do you, are you hungry? Have you had something to eat? And remember he said, do you remember what he said? My food is what? To do the will of God. That's my food. I love that. That's how you glorify God. You do his will. That's, there's a whole lot of things we could say there, but we just simply don't have the time. Let's go to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We know Jesus existed in perfect love and communication in the Trinity before he came. Um, you know that famous verse there in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. He existed in the form of God, but did not regard this equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We all, I think, are familiar with that verse. Verse 6. I manifested your name to the man to your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Man, there's a ton of theology there. But I, I, I'm just gonna initially say, look at that last sentence, that last phrase, that last phrase there. The true Christian does what? They've kept your word. They keep, they keep your word. The elect keep your word. The ones you elected and gave to me, you gave them to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they kept your word. I mean, this, that's your, this is your stewardship. This is what we've been talking about, right? The last couple of weeks. The real Christian keeps the word. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. We've, we've got sin to deal with. And the deeper we go with God, the deeper we discover the sin is. But this is an amazing, amazing truth. Men that were given to Jesus by the Father. And here's what I want to say to you. Here's where it may be uncomfortable for some of you. You know, some, some want to say, well, this is, they're, they're gods in a proprietary sense. Well, that's true of everybody. God, you know, every man that's walking the earth, it's the intellectual property of God. Okay? Some people say, well, what he's talking about is the fact that they're, they're his by Jewish covenant. Well, that would mean every Jew. Every Jew is his, of course, by covenant. But if we allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture, if we understand the particulars of Scripture from the balance of Scripture, if we seek to make sense of Scripture uh, as a whole from its particulars, if we attempt to say yes to every passage, we find God's meaning here. And I'll turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You can go with me. Here's what God is saying. Some of you will be uncomfortable with this. I pray that none of you are. But some of you may be. And what I want to say to you, it's okay if you struggle with this truth. Many, many, many people have. I did it one time. But you know what I did? I did the Isaiah 66, 2 thing. Humility, contrition, and trembling. Man, if you have to tremble, feel free. Feel free. But let's turn over real quick to Ephesians chapter 1, verses Verses 3 through 6. This, this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, you can disagree with me if you want. That's your prerogative. But I, I challenge you to come to me uh, with textual evidence that I'm wrong. Okay? Hey, if I'm wrong, I'll change my sermon. I, I'm always ready to change my sermon if I'm wrong. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I could go to many other texts. We simply do not have time for that. Um, the Bible is pretty clear. God is unapologetic. He likes to talk about those he has foreknown, he has chosen, he has elected, and he has predestined. That is clearly what is being talked about here in John 17. You, you have to stand on your head to make it say anything else. That is exactly what Jesus is communicating. This is the divine side of human salvation that the Bible makes quite clear. I know that predestination and election doesn't fall easily on most people's ears. If you have never been taught these things, I understand they don't fall easily on your ears. But here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to work on it, and He wants you to get to that place where you love it. And that's your assurance. That is your assurance, right? Your assurance is not how moral I am. My assurance is that I'm a love gift from the Father to the Son. That in eternity past, I was elect. Why? Because it pleased God, not because I deserved it. And, and men who preach it different, beloved, I'm just going to say this to you. It's a stench in God's nostrils. They're touching the glory of God. You're touching the glory of God if you think you can save yourself by, uh, you know, repeating a, a brain-dead prayer. You're touching the glory of God if you think an ordinance is going to save you. You're touching the glory of God if you think church attendance is going to save you. God says, I save my people. I do it. Now, you, 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 it's, it's between you and God. And if you have questions, I'm happy, to, I'm happy to be there for you. I'll throw you some good books. But here's my challenge. I always, I always, I've been doing this for 18 years. I've had a lot of people come through who struggle with this. And I say, it's okay. Struggle all you want. But don't abandon it. And don't edit it. And don't discard it. And don't ignore it. God means for you to love it. He means for you to love it. And if you don't love it, then you've got work to do. The Father and the Son love it. It's what they're talking about. They love it. They love the greatness and sovereignty of God and the salvation of His people. They love it. It's what they're talking about. In the most explicit intra-Trinitarian communication we're, we're allowed to hear. Beloved, this is huge. Um, I know that we're going to separate in a couple of months. And uh, don't touch the glory of God. Don't cheapen what God has said He's done. And if you struggle, okay, struggle. It took me 10 years with Romans 9. Are you willing to give 10 years to, to the study of something? Are you, are you willing? I, it's been my, it's been my uh, experience that many simply are not. Let me just ask you this. You know, sometimes we have cognitive struggles with the Word of God. Our minds are temporal. They're constrained by time. Our minds are finite. It's two and a half pounds of gray matter juxtaposed to infinite mind. Our minds are fallen and sinful. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Of course there's tension. 
If there's not tension in the Bible, you're not understanding it. You are not understanding it. So two things are true in the Bible. God elects and you are responsible. You say, Jim, I don't get it. That seems incongruous. Doesn't seem to come together. These are true, two truths in Scripture. They're both revealed. God is sovereign. You're responsible. And I'm with the Apostle Paul. I don't explain it. You can go to Romans 9 yourself. That's why those two rhetorical questions are there. Paul knows that many men are going to hate this, if not most men. And he says there in Romans 9, he says, um, there's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, exclamation point. You know, that's the first question. Well, this, this, this makes God look unjust and unfair. Paul raises that question in Romans 9. Then he says, verse 19, Romans 9, why does he still find fault? He's God. Why does he still find fault? What's, what, what, how does Paul answer it? Remember? On the contrary, O oh man, who are you to debate with God? Right? If God says this is how he does it, who are you? Who are you? It's like, he told, it's like you know, when he came to Job. Who do you think you are questioning me? Oh, just, just the, the, the embarrassing arrogance in the modern church. The embarrassing arrogance to question God. Listen, on that last day, there won't be any questions. There'll be no questions on the last day. Again, struggle if you will. God says, I'm looking for that person who reverently responds to what I say. The criteria is never, do you like it? The criteria is, do you submit to the word of God? The criteria is, will you work hard and pray and ask the spirit of God to help you, right? This is the criteria. If these are new to you, I am very happy to try to help you if I can. You know, the default is some people who struggle with this and they, they think it puts God in a bad light. Again, it's simply not. The, de the default is we trust God, right? The default is we know he's good. He can do none other than what is right and perfect and just. So we trust him. Even, even the things that eclipse our finite understanding, we trust him with them. And at the very least, I'm asking you to trust him with them. If you have a, a propensity to want to discard these, these God-revealed realities. In the very least, you can trust him with them. So sometimes the word is hard to understand. Sometimes it's paradoxical. Sometimes it's mysterious. How could it not be? It's infinite, eternal God talking to you, right? Finite, temporal gem. Of course it eclipses my ability to fully grasp and understand. But what do I do? He, uh, Isaiah 66, 2, I just receive it. With humility, contrition, and trembling. Sometimes I'll ask people, what makes you, I'll ask them, I'll say, what makes you think you're supposed to understand it? What makes you think you're supposed to fully grasp it and understand it? Sometimes, beloved, in the Bible, you're just supposed to receive it. It's what faith means. 
I just receive it. Why? Because God said it. Now, if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, you need to go do something else, right? The Bible is the word of God. Now, if you, if you have doubts about that, well, you, you, obviously you, you, don't, you don't have any business calling yourself a Christian. The Bible <laughs> is the word of God. I love that exhortation in Hebrews 6 1 man you got to move beyond the elementary teaching you got to press on to maturity right and that in part is what we're talking about this morning so Jesus is not praying for Christianettes and we're going to see it developed even more deeply in the next two weeks he's not praying for Christianettes He's not praying for the world. We're going to see that next week. He's praying for His people. This is absolutely, exegetically clear. Again, you have to stand on your head to make it sound or to make it uh, mean anything else. He's praying for His 11 guys and He bleeds over into praying for us. Every born-again man and woman who will follow in their footsteps. You know, the guys that pick up their cross and follow Him, the guys that seek, seek ye first the kingdom of God, the guys that, that fight the good fight and finish the course and keep the faith, the guys that, 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 that live uh, like Christ is gain. Those guys, that's who He's praying for. He's praying for those guys that are sold out. Sold out. Sold out. Because as I always say, if you've met him, you are sold out. Now, we can all be guilty of leaving our first love and become distracted. But what I'm saying to you, you've got work to do, man. And you better not be lazy with that. You better not be lazy. If you are not sold out, you need to get back to your first love. So Jesus is praying audibly that we might know how big and awesome and weighty and beautiful and mysterious and wonderful our salvation is. Right? And God says, this is the kind of person who lives my gift of eternal life huge. The one who is humble, contrite of spirit, and is always happy to tremble at my word. Let's pray together.